This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. This is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? Good, man. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Uh, well, actually, we have Brent Stucker. Uh, Brent is, well, is a longtime additive manufacturing researcher, uh, and he's been uh, working on additive for well, well over 25 years. He was an, a professor at Louisville and uh, University of Rhode Island as well. Uh, and he looked all set to 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 be a professor emeritus of additive manufacturing. Wrote a really good book, Additive Manufacturing Technologies, by the way, uh, which is my well, I think it's my actually my favorite three D printing book. Actually, still, uh, oh, it's really great, uh, and I uh, really enjoy it. And uh, he then actually, as a professor, started a, a, his own uh, simulation uh, company, three D Sim, uh, which he then sold uh, to Ansys. And then later on, uh, well, now he actually works uh, for three systems, uh, and uh, uh, and so that's a, a, a quite the career change of one of the most experienced AM people and a uh, really great guy. So yeah, welcome, uh, Brent Stucker. Happy to be here. Yeah. So so Brent, how did you? When did you first get started in Adobe? What, what was your first contact with this technology? Yeah, it's interesting. That was um, thirty years ago. Um, I I first read about it in a mechanical engineering magazine as an undergraduate student, and it sort of just stuck in the back of my mind as, wow, that's interesting. And a year later, when I went to grad school, I was able to work out to be uh, to do my PhD work in rapid prototyping, is what is what it was called at the time. And oh wow! So, you know, got hooked, and I've been in it ever since. Okay, okay. And then when you got started, would you get started with like SLA and stuff like that, or? I was actually had one of the first SLS machines, uh, one of the early beta machines, uh-huh. and um, was looking at metal ceramic composites, actually. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> the <And> early <laughs> days of, yeah. Now that stuff's like cutting edge, but back then I can't even imagine how crude it might have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because the industry only 30 years later is finally starting to make money in some of the things I was doing in my PhD work. Uh, a lot of the work that <laughs> Desktop Metal X1 and others are doing and binder jetting are directly related to some of the issues I was looking at 30 years ago, having to do with centering and shrinkage and dimensional changes and things like that. And, and in the beginning, was it was it difficult to get funding for this kind of thing? Because you were a researcher, right? Was it like, was it, were you on an island then? Or was it was it really difficult to get people to understand why how this is important? The no funding island. Yeah, I mean, it was, there was a little blip of it being in vogue in the middle 90s that um, National Science Foundation, when I, I helped my advisor, my PhD advisor, uh, basically wrote a couple proposals to NSF. And they had a lot of overlap because normally you don't get one funded, so you hedge your bets. And actually, NSF uh, approved both for funding, so we had to modify all the work statements so that we couldn't take the same money twice, right? But so it, it was highly unusual in that um, there was this little blip in the in the early to mid '90s where you know there was some decent, not very many people working, and the promise was so big that that there was some money to be had. Now that that become much harder. To, to get money after that as well in this area. But I kind of hit a sweet spot at the early stage. And do you have a moment where you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life? Was it like this aha or laboriness, kind of like this uh, 
fiat looks kind of moment or was it just like gradually you started to get more and more interested in this yeah that's that's interesting i uh you know but just before i started my phd um i i got some funding um to travel all over the u.s well in this case is mostly the northeast that it, visit everywhere that had a rapid prototyping machine i could find um so, so four places Ford and Chrysler and little mom and pop shops. And I, I, you know, got to know even some of the founders like Chuck Hole and Scott Crump uh, early in those, in those days and, and found just fascination with all of these technologies. And so I think I was hooked pretty early um, just, just from how much potential there was and how the community actually was just a really creative and fun um, and kind of embracing community in those early days. It, it was, it was, it was really quite a. I don't know that it had both the intellectual stimulation and also sort of that community feel that made it like uh, really resonated with what I wanted to do in my career. Okay. When when you were running around like that, what would you guesstimate the number of three D printers that were actually in operation at that time? Like in the thousands <laughs> or in the hundreds? If that hundreds, hundreds to thousands at max hundreds and thousands. thousands. Yeah. And, yeah. And it was, I mean, it, it was, it was kind of funny. Cause I, I was able to tell people like when I started reading, I could read every single article that was ever published. That was about. This <laughs> yeah. No, me too, dude. I was obsessed. <laughs> and from 2008, <laughs> I read everything and people didn't believe me. I was like, no, I've read everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything because there wasn't that much no no it was, it was doable it, was, it wasn't easy but it was doable. no no i get i get that there was stuff but i'm just saying it wasn't like the massive deluge you now get yeah, like, now you're like you... everybody and their mother wants to characterize like ink and l 718 yeah exactly one do, do we really want this again <laughs> yeah um but um okay okay but and then um, yeah, you, you kind of grew up with the technology, I guess, in your career. It's, it's kind of like it grew as your, you know, kind of, you, you focus a lot on powder bed fusion, right? The characterization materials, that kind of thing. But you're kind of also kind of all over the place. I mean. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I started out with uh, powder bed fusion. Um, also bought one of the first Optimec lens machines when I was a first professor. Uh, cool. And so I was yeah. sort of doing laser centering and metal deposition. And um Got into ultrasonic additive, you know, lay, laying up layer by layer. Back then it was Solitica. Now it's Fabrisonics, uh, which still remains kind of a, a little niche um, mm -hmm. process. But uh, then moved into metal laser uh, laser powder bed um, with EOS machines later in my career as those, you know, came up and became started to become a major focus in the industry. So I evolved as the industry evolved. I guess my my. My shtick was to try to be the first one in, in academia to grab a new technology, characterize it, write about it, do research on it. And, and so I kind of rode that wave for 18 years as a professor. Yeah, and is that, is that something you, you literally had a plan? You were like, okay, if anything comes out, I don't, you know, binder jet ceramics, I'm on it. Is that, is that really you had a plan and you were just like, like, yeah, uh, I, I don't know if I thought about it mentally as like, this is my plan, but that's just the way I operate. It's sort of like built into my DNA. If I see something that I think has legs, I want to try it. And I want to yeah. be one of the first ones out there trying it. Yeah. And is, is, there, is there a tip to somebody you would give in academia? Like yeah, right. how to get ahead in academia? Because it seems to be kind of a difficult, <laughs> kind of a little bit of a minefield, I guess, to, to get ahead, you know? Yeah, it really is tough. Um, I think you have to distinguish yourself with a niche. But I think you also have to f 
fully integrate yourself with the community, you know, in industry, you know, go to AMUG, but also, mm -hmm. you know, serve on government panels for the Department of Defense or NSF if you're an American or if you're mm -hmm. in Europe, get involved with EPSRC or your country specific mm -hmm. um, funding agencies. So it, I think the core is you got to get out there and get to know people who are working in this area and um, and really then keep your finger on the pulse of the research community, but also the industrial community, if you really mm -hmm. want to be a good researcher in this area. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like a lot of people, well, I, I have my golden tip is to make a test or a calibration test or a test thing and make it very badly or poorly <laughs> so that everyone then cites your paper saying, we, we did the, the Janssen test <laughs> and the Peels test, and we chose the Janssen test because it's much better. You get really excited a lot that way. But, uh, <laughs> but apart from that, I think, I think a lot of people uh, don't uh, really realize how important it is to yeah, interface with industry to network, essentially, you know, to get people to know who you are. Absolutely. And I think that was one of the benefits of joining early in, in the evolution of this industry is because I, I got to know all the, you know, first founders and major researchers early on. Then um, I kind of established my my reputation and can just ride that up with the industry. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's going to be harder for new people in the industry to mm -hmm. to create a reputation that's known industry wide because the industry is huge now. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's only a small percentage of the people involved will have an mm -hmm. opportunity to be known worldwide for what they're doing. Yeah. So I, I, it is harder now to, to establish yourself. I kind of hit it at that sweet spot where I could just, I could grow with the industry. Yeah, and also I think, I think you were doing stuff like, you know, you were doing all over the place at one point you were doing simulation and you were doing characterization and you were doing intermetallics, whatever you were all. And I think nowadays you'd have to specialize much sooner as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I was even doing things like putting multiple types of machines together, metal and plastic machines, along with, you know, mm -hmm. with um, electronics printing all into the same platform and showing that potential, which we still haven't had any well commercialized machines out there. Doing I was going to say, you got it to work. <laughs> like, we did. Where's that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and it was, it was, we showed all kinds of cool things that you could do, but it was more a thought experiment. And I, I mm -hmm. still think the industry is going to be going there mm -hmm. in the future, but but more once we get machines to start to be able to be integrated into a production line. Now I can put this you know metal process here mm -hmm. in the production line, and this um, and this down later in the production line. Maybe some polymer extrusion so that I can you know make a insulator and then you know do some some printing of electronics into that uh, polymer thing that I just put inside the metal thing, you know, the, mm -hmm. and those are sort of what we were demonstrating early on. Mm -hmm. And the technologies have not, have not really enabled that to be put into a production line yet. It'll get there. Yeah. But you know, we're, you have to do those forward thought experiments to, to show the way mm -hmm. to that. And because it takes a lot of money to get there. So without, without showing the way that it's possible, then no one will ever invest all that money to, to make the dream happen. Yeah, definitely. Do you find sometimes like academics can be, I mean, I guess in more well-established sections, academics can actually be doing experiments that have already been completed by the private sector. The private sector just hasn't released it because they don't want anyone to know that they figured this out. Are you seeing something similar to that in well, 3D printing yeah. space or the opposite because it was so new? I guess I find it both directions in that... Um, What's interesting to me is, is let's say as binder jetting was exploding um, in the last, you know, ever since desktop metal sort of put, started doing massive marketing in this area, 
I found that both industry and academia were starting to repeat the exact same experiments we had done 25 years earlier. Um, and, <laughs> and instead of just looking at they didn't even know that the literature existed. <laughs> and so right. <laughs> it happens all over the place um, where the, it's now grown to the point where, yeah, a lot of academics are repeating things that industry has already done and vice versa. Industry's reinventing the wheel over and over again. And um, it, it, but I, I, it's, it's frustrating, but yet that's normal. It happens in every industry as well as it grows. Mm. Oh, of course. That's just the standard way that, that this mm. happens. I think I think it's interesting that you you brought up this multiple technologies approach because what I, I just gave a presentation at a manufacturing strategies event and one of the things I mentioned that people often they implement they buy one machine and one technology and they run one material on it and then they implement additive right or they try to implement additive with that one technology right and then right. then they include additive doesn't work for that part and I'm like no no your machine with your material with your knowledge doesn't work for that part you know there's a lot of I think a lot of yeah, mixing and matching of technologies yet to happen. I completely agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, it's like trying to use a hammer to drive a screw, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's you have to understand what the tool is good for, and and that kind of you know brings me to you know why in the world did I join 3D Systems after mm -hmm. being in all these different you know types of things? It's because 3D Systems has this broadest portfolio of tools. And, you know, getting back to those sort of early days as in an academic, trying all the tools and seeing what's going to stick and where it's going to go, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to be coming back around. But this time in industry instead of academia, we've got this massive toolbox that we can play with to, to innovate from. No, totally. I think, I think that, well, first of all, we'll get to three systems in a bit because I, I think it's interesting that at one point you decided to write a textbook together with Ian Gibson, who's been on, on the, the, the podcast before as well. And Brent Rosen, or uh, Rosen, who has not, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So when, when did you decide to make a textbook? Was that an opportunity? Did you, did you meet? Uh, how did you end up making a textbook? You know, in the in the early 2000s, um, I had a postdoc in myself. We, we wrote a, a really extended um, analysis of, of what we called in that additive manufacturing. And we, we started to try to popularize the term additive manufacturing. And it was in the Laser um, Institute of America handbook. And, you know, it was it was not a full textbook. It was maybe one quarter the size of what ended up in our textbook. But to do that, we had to finally try to come up with a way of characterizing all of these machines and approaches into some sort of categories. And so, and, and I couldn't find a good textbook to teach from. I, I'd really, for years and years, had to try to take this kind of sort of chaos in industry in academia and, and and put some rigor around it and and teaching that for years and just sort of slowly changing my approach and, and reconfiguring how I uh, grouped technologies we came up with this in this handbook and then I said hey we really need to turn this into a real textbook and so I was in Portugal at the what used to be the VRAP conference mm -hmm. and David Rosen and uh, Ian Gibson and I we're there and we're all talking about the struggles of teaching in our various industries. At that time, you know, David was at Georgia Tech and I was in Utah and Ian was in uh, Singapore. And um, we found out that all three of us were intending to write a textbook. And so he said, yeah. hey, this doesn't make any sense competing with each other. Why don't we just write the same textbook together? Mm -hmm. And as we went around and around, um, they they adopted the uh, machine type categories that I had I had put into this handbook as yeah the most logical way of categorizing these technologies, 
and, and over time those became the ASTM standard categories and, and now ISO standard category. So that textbook was really sort of that middle piece of that evolution of the industry into what is today, you know, seven well-known categories that everybody uses in academia and in the commercial sector. That polymerization, really, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, one's a, that was a that was a tough one for me to come up with a name. Yeah, you can you can pin that one on me, but you can also pin powder bed fusion on me. I mean, yeah. those are things I made up out of my own head <clears throat> that have become industry standards. Do um, you have a favorite and a, and a least favorite name that you came up with for these? Oh yeah, that photopolymerization was not my favorite, but you know, like we tried we tried all kinds of things. Uh, of course, stereolithography was a trademark name, uh, and mm, that's also mm. not doesn't. It doesn't really characterize how the process works, so we tried yeah. to name things that kind of came back to the the basic architecture and physics of the machine. And you know, that's the photopolymerization one was the was, is never rolls off the tongue well. Oh. I wish that we'd come up with something better, but you know, to date, nobody really has, so yeah. you kind of live with it. No, it's cool. It's, it must be interesting to see something like that that, you, that came off your bench, like come back, like so often everywhere you know kind of like kind of like yeah, yeah so be so omnipresent you know yeah and i i guess my favorite is powder bed fusion that term you know i, I was cool struggled and struggled with what to call this and and uh mm. that one's really stuck and people people have used it it's all a, over the place. it describes it quite well actually is you know you can see it in your head when you say it so which is goal <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and it and it, back then people were like arguing ad nauseum about centering versus melting versus i'm like right you can do both let's just call it fusion because like right yeah that's what you're using things no, but yeah so everybody had like different names for powder bed fusion as well and that was really confusing and these people were like no we're not we're not uh, our patent doesn't allow us to fully melt it and your patent right. does, right? <laughs> and it was just a bunch of Germans that had fallen out, like kind of arguing with each other. And it was just so confusing. Like, people, like, and customers would come in, and they would say, like, "Oh, we're only looking at selective melting." And I'm like, uh, "Why?" <laughs> and it was just, uh, it was not, just super yeah, confusing. not understanding that it's the exact same thing, right? Yeah, it's the exact and, same and thing. I yeah. even remember trying to do procurement back then, helping people with procurement. Yeah. And they couldn't even write a, you know, like a, a request for proposal because <laughs> yeah. you're, you had to put 20 terms into your request for a proposal for a machine because yeah. there was no standard terminology. Yeah. No, I, th I think, and there was no terminology, but also people would come to me knowing about one company and not knowing about the other one. And, and so they would like think that they only had one vendor to choose from. I'm like, no, no, these guys do exactly the same thing. <laughs> you can also look at SLM solutions or, but that's laser cusing. Yeah. But that's just something their marketing people come up with. It's not an actual <laughs> technology. <laughs> ah, the marketing department. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, uh, but so the, so the book, I think is really interesting. The book is also, that's another thing you did that, that, that really, because a friend of mine literally like last week or something asked me, like, I have a new sales guy. How do I help him get involved in 3d printing? You know? And I recommended your book, and that's from like 2015 or whatever. It's been updated, mm -hmm. right? But I still think that's interesting that you do these things that are really a part of the structure of the, the industry still. It was, it was a lot of work. I, I hate writing textbooks. I mean, it, it's no fun. Mm -hmm. um, but I look back as, you know, that pain uh, as being some of the most valuable things I've done in my career. Because mm -hmm. it really did reset the trajectory for how we teach. And in my last look, there's over 600 universities worldwide who are using this textbook. And 
um, it really did form the basis of all the international standards we have today. And, and that's that's really one of the things that I look back in my career and said, yeah, I did make a difference. And it actually did help the the international world come together mm-hmm. in a way that we were just so fractured before. And that was something I, I was always trying to do in my career. Let's see if we can let's see if we can communicate more effectively. Let's see if we can work together more effectively. And I, and I think um, what it's kind of funny that it's words in this case that did it. Um, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, that I, I do really, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I did it. I'm not, I'm not sure I want to update it again because it's so much work. <laughs> <laughs> whether, whether I'll just turn it over to some young person who's, who's really loves to this. And, and, and in fact, we did bring on a fourth author in the last edition. Um, Mayar uh, Corsani, because he, you know, he was he's wanting to to get involved in the industry and and willing to put in a bunch of time and effort to update the last edition, and um, yeah, so we might end up doing that in the future as well, bringing in some more people to help I, update. I, I it. can write. I just want to like point out that I write quite a lot. I've been doing this for a long time. For a job. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and I yeah. love your book. I have it actually already, so we don't have to get it. Uh, you wouldn't have to send me a new one, um, but um, <laughs> but um, and then and then okay, and then well, you moved from what you were in Texas first, and you were uh, in Louisville, right, at one point. No, well, oh. I went, my under my PhD was A and M, and that's yeah. where I kind of got involved with DTM and all of the early laser centering, and then that was Texas A and M, and then went to Rhode Island and did a bunch of um, work on uh, powder bed fusion and um, lens, you know, directed energy deposition. Uh, did some. Just a little bit of other stuff too. Then I went to Utah State University where I started to do a lot of stuff with ultrasonic additive manufacturing of metal sheets. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the stuff I had been doing before. And then from was there for eight years, did a lot in satellites, did a lot helping the DOD, but then moved to University of Louisville, which was my last academic position and was there they, for They, they drove you out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's more like they gave me the, uh, an opportunity to really shine. They had this great, I mean, a really great uh, endowed professorship that they gave me that gave me a lot of flexibility and freedom. And that's where all the simulation stuff after years and years of running experiments and taking an entire PhD project to like to develop a new material, mm-hmm. you're just saying there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and the better way is really simulation. And so sort of shifted a major part of my work over to simulation in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what led to the spin out of my company and then me leaving academia to join company full time. So but that, that was, was like, sort of, was that something you planned? You seemed to kind of like, I met, I met you a couple times in that time. You seemed to kind of roll into it, kind of. <laughs> kind of like, kind yeah. Of, yeah. I, you're you know, just I, like, eh, fine, company. I, can I, I was having my, <laughs> yeah, I did my second um, sabbatical. So you get to, you know, that's one thing that's the beauty of academia. So my second sabbatical in Finland. and was really sort of doing some soul searching, like, what do I want to do next? I have all this amazing work we've done in simulation. And at that time I was thinking, well, we got to get it out to industry. So I came back from that, from that in 2013 and really tried to push that out into industry. And people just didn't get the vision and they didn't see how they could turn that into anything useful. And I was putting so much effort into trying to help companies be successful in thinking about how to do that. And then I'm really just dawned on me one day talking to my partners that, you know, if this is going to be successful, we have to do it ourselves. 
was, I was sort of like backed into a corner. I, I believed in it so much. I really wanted right. to see it happen, but nobody else could was getting it. So we said, let's do it. Let's just do it ourselves. I called up um, some friends of mine in the industry. Um, David Lee was actually the one I called, who's now right. CTO of 3D Systems. Said, hey, I think I need to start a company because he was he was a very successful entrepreneur in our industry. Um, you know, had one of the most successful service bureaus, and then sold it Harvest, to Stratasys yeah. and. But we've been friends ever since he installed the first machine in my labs when I was a grad student. And um, uh, he was a, he was a recent uh, graduate and working at DTM at the time as a low level engineer and, and then went on to be an entrepreneur. But anyway, so I called David and said, I think I got to start the com a company in this area. And here's what we have. And he said, I'm in. You know, I'll go find some more investors. And we did it. We, you know, we created 3D Sim and. Um, I recruited a bunch of people and and you know built it up, sold it to Ansys. So story was it profitable? No, before you sold it. No, no, we, we were pre-revenue when we sold it. Um, it we were it. sort of at that point where you're either you have to go raise a ton of money to build right. a profitable company, or you sell it to somebody else and let them build it. We had offers. You know, we we ran kind of a process and we had offers for both. You know, financial investment and or buying us out. And we decided that you know getting bought out was was the best thing, and then Ansys by far was the best acquirer that we could have had. So it, it all kind of came together nicely. Hmm. I think I think the value represented by three D Sim is going to be huge. I think a lot of people didn't really understand just how much time it costs to do toolpath planning, uh, developing the right strategies, and developing the right builds, and 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 also a lot of people didn't think past the part and say just how much you would win with simulating like. Uh, serious production and these kind of things, you know, and qualification, this kind of stuff. And, and I think 99% of the industry still doesn't realize it, unfortunately. It's it's mm -hmm. a slow uptake on simulation, but it's for those who do, um, you know, kind of dig into it. You know, we had one customer when I was at Ansys who were running in the cloud, I think about a, somewhere around 100 ver you know, licenses of our software simultaneously to run large parametric studies. And they were brilliant at using it and taking what were you know, months and thousands of coupons they normally did down to just days in a couple of mm -hmm. coupons to, to develop new process parameters. So the, the potential is there. People are doing it, but it's... Um, it really well one is hasn't become push button easy you still kind of need somebody who knows what they're doing to run some of the software that's not true for just for if you're just trying to say predict how it's something distorts and then counteract that distortion yeah that's push button simple now very easy and mm -hmm. people should be using that as sort of like a bread and butter mm -hmm. kind of a part of their workflow in my opinion using it for process parameter optimization for new new machines new materials that that's still takes um, you know a person in the loop who kind of knows what they're doing to get yeah. the value out of it. Actually, it's also interesting note, my only academic paper ever is an Additive Manufacturing Pioneers interview I did with David Lee. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for Liebert Pub, the, the 3D printing and additive manufacturing journal thing, you know? Yep. yep. In 2014. It's the only the academic thing I've ever published. <laughs> yeah. Was that the one started by Hod Lipson or was Yeah, the Hod Lipson one. Yeah, the Hod Lipson. Yeah, yeah. I love Hod by the way. Hod's great. Small He's the reason world. I'm an additive, right? So I read a paper by Hod and Evan Malone, and that's why I'm an additive. So 
Yeah, yeah, and it was it was really fun. Like been, having been an additive for this long, I remember the very first time Hod came to one of our academic conferences in additive, and he was young professor trying yeah. to find his way. And I sat next to him on a bus and just <laughs> kind of talked about the industry and heard his vision. And yeah, yeah. It, 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 that's been fun to do that over and over. But Hod's one of those guys who. I remember distinctly his first time coming to the SFF symposium. Oh, yeah. Great, great, yeah great. Getting to meet him and then getting to meet Evan. And then Evan mm-hmm. and I worked a lot on international standards together. So it's kind of like a history of, uh, of um, you know, sort of like a, a fatherly academic and then the, the son who gets trained by him sort of thing. Oh, I'm cool. curious, since you had such a wide and long perspective of the whole industry, is there a technology that you're surprised failed? That you thought like didn't get its proper shake. Loam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the laminated sheet side. Um, <laughs> it's never died. It's never died. Um, but I, you know, making paper laminates yeah, yeah. into something. No, that's not worth it. Yeah. But I still think metal sheet laminates are still being used yeah. in a lot of industries. People are just not really. They're just doing it internally. And not really publishing it because it, they're building up tools that way, or jigs and fixtures, or other things you know, things that way. Um, so um, I think the one that's taken longer to to come back is what is now the binder jetting, right? I I, and mm. I think it was probably 15 years ago. I sort of wrote a predictive paper and said, hey, I, I expect someday that metal binder jetting will completely replace metal injection molding in most powder metallurgy processes. But I thought that would have occurred already, and it still mm. hasn't, um, mostly because we still can't control the shrinkage during centering as well as we want to. And we won't be able to control that without really good simulation tools. So right now we're finally getting those simulation tools released into industry. ANSYS is releasing some and others are. So I think we're closer than ever to that, but it has much less to do with who's making the machine because um, there's a lot of people who make good binder jetting machines out there. It has more to do with controlling the furnace process, and people just haven't put the time and effort and money into that because they see you know, furnace processing. That's been around for thousands of years. Like That's not cool and, and sexy, <laughs> you know? and, uh, but yet that's where all the problems are. That's where all the problems are. So I, I still expect us to get there to basically almost wipe out metal injection molding and, and powder metallurgy, but um, it's taken a lot longer than I thought. It's interesting to see because, like, yeah, just to understand the challenge a little bit more. I mean, it's different. The shrinkage is different in every wall thickness and 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 a lot of geometries as well, right? So, yeah. so that's why I've always thought of binder jet much more, and maybe that would even fit in your and MIM picture. Is that you know it's a great technology if you want to go through the time in qualifying a thousand parts, right? And then printing those parts out of ten locations for for twenty bucks then it's, it's totally a beautiful technology. But in a service bureau environment, I, I just don't see it working. Like like in the near term, like uh, I don't see it working. Yeah, because you have to go through, you know, you know, a few or sometimes dozens of manual iterations to dial in that shrinkage. And right. um, that, that's just not, that's not financially, you know, rewarding if you're only building a few parts. It's only worth it if you're going to build oh. lots of the same geometry. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, again, that's where simulation is have to come in because you have to, you know, depending on how you center it, you've got friction in the, you know, when you set it on a plate and stick it in an oven, you've got 
gravitational forces and you have all of those d dimensions where every dimension kind of has a different centering um, characteristic. You're, yeah. you're exactly right, uh, Joris. Yeah. And so we haven't gotten there yet. No, is it really, is it just a man hours problem at this point? Or is there a limiting factor in, in our technology right now? Well, it's more, it's more, how do we capture the right physics, physics phenomena in math, into math, and, and solve that problem quickly enough on a computer um, so that you can just, every arbitrary geometry you want to print, we can center it, we can simulate it in the workflow just without slowing the workflow down. Um, and so there's there's still a little bit of questions about what is the right physics. There's still a little bit of questions about what how do we represent those physics in the math in the math. And then there's still a little bit of how do we solve that math fast enough to make it you know usable to the end user. And so but we're 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 improving that every iteration, and it'll get there. It'll get there. Yeah. It's interesting because the problem space is very large, but if you look at the, what's the constraint, you did mention the gravity element. Essentially, these parts, a lot of times in the green state, they fall apart, right? And yeah. and that's a, But that is actually quite interestingly, comparatively easy to model, right? And if they just get yeah. rid of all the parts that fall apart in the green state, everything that looks like a wine glass, if you will, then actually the solution space would be so much smaller that it would be much easier to solve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's some practical parts that we. It's tough to get rid of that, right? So you know that you kind of have a chicken and egg or circular thing. It's going to take a lot of iterations to get there. Totally, totally. Oh, okay, so what made you? At one point you said it already. At one point you decided to join three systems as a chief scientist, which sounds really cool, by the way. Yeah, that does um, sound cool. Yeah, that oh, sounds really cool. But what do you actually do? <laughs> first off, why did you do this, and what, what what do you actually do? Okay, well, great question. So, um, the. You know, 3D Systems has had a long and storied history in our industry um, with, you know, everybody's sort of had a love-hate relationship with 3D Systems over the past 30 years. But Chuck Hole, who founded it, and he's just been sort of a rock-solid person behind the technology for years. So always appreciated some, the technology 3D Systems has done. But some of the personalities in the past, you know, maybe maybe I didn't, wouldn't have wanted to work for them. But it was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll just keep it there. But, yeah, we don't need to name names. I have no yeah. idea. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. But in this new regime, like um, maybe regime is the wrong word, but that we hired this definitely the wrong word. But anyways, yeah. Jeff Gray came in as the CEO after you know several um, just shifts in in leadership really focus the company back down to the core of hey, we want to be the best technology company in the additive manufacturing space in the world, um, at, in software, in hardware, and in materials. And sold off all kinds of divisions that did not um, focus on that. And um, you know, reconfigured the whole company and hired David Lee as CTO. And I didn't know about all of this until David came to me just before he was hired as CTO to give me a heads up and say, hey, I'm joining in this position. And I'm like, why in the world would you do that? Because you had a really good gig in the past at, at EOS that he had been working in that he had left um, before joining 3D Systems. And he gave me the vision of what 3D Systems was doing and where they were in this transformation. And then uh, asked me about, you know, what would be the position I would want if I was going to join this? And out of that came this chief scientist position. But, but 
you know, I, I got the vision. I, I could see it. I could see what the CEO was doing. I could see why why David had joined it, why he was going to be CTO. And I said, hey, I'll I'll get involved with that as chief scientist and help you guys because this is we could really make a difference in the world if we pull this off right. And so that's what we're doing. We're we're in the process of of reconfiguring and rebuilding 3D systems so that it can continue to be. Uh, the most innovative company in the additive manufacturing space for the next 30 years. Is there so, anything particular that you're excited about and that's that you can talk about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm excited about that, that we're focused back in on, on, on additive, you know, and not, and that we're not competing with our customers anymore. You know, we're, 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 you know, we are building the machines and, and the hardware and the software, and then we're turning them loose into the world. We're becoming more of a team player in the industry. Um, you know, there was this period of time a while back in the industry where companies would not play nice with each other. Um, they would, you know, if you're buying my machine, you have to buy my material and my software, you know, this sort of thing, and and really kind of sticking it to the consumer, uh, meaning the other business or soldier. You know, and, and we're moving away from that kind of strategy where we're saying we you know to grow the industry we all need to bring our best thing and if if my best thing needs to be with combined with your best thing in order to make the the customer successful then let's do that and that those sort of changes are already starting to happen in, in the marketplace but more of those changes will be coming and that that was one of the things Jeff mentioned when he publicly announced me joining 3D systems is part of my role is to build the industry, to make the industry more successful. And part of making the industry more successful is to be more collaborative instead of silo, you know, each of our little companies and our technology apart from other people and then make the customer choose, you know, it's my way or the highway. You're either, you know, in my camp or you're not. No, we don't need to do that to our customers. We need to put the best technology in front of them and win on the technology. I think it's an interesting vision because, like uh, I did say before, that like everybody was kind of like for for twenty years, everybody's kind of like it was really profitable to be like captive of your own silo. You know, sell these materials at a high price, you know, sell service at a high price, only your machines, only that technology, and they just dominate that that little pond. You know, uh, and then that never grew bigger because I was like I was always on the outside saying that like, guys, we don't have to make this material eight hundred dollars a liter. <laughs> Because that's what my <laughs> customer is kind of my customer is not able to implement this because of this material cost, you know. And we're always stuck in this chicken egg problem that the volume weren't big enough to attract new people to make the materials cheaper. But the guys in it were all fat and happy. Yeah, and you can you raise your plate during yeah. the twenty years while your patents are in force. But now we're now we're old enough that you know all of the key seminal technology patents and even the key material patents that form the basis of the industry have have expired. And now you have to win, not because you own the patent, but because you're doing it the best. Mm -hmm. And that's really a change in mindset in the industry that um, it's been happening now for over 10 years, right? You know, you've got all these little rinky-dink 3D printers in people's homes. Well, that's because Scott Crump's initial patents expired. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've seen that, but now it's really starting to occur in the industrial space as well, where... Mm -hmm. um, you got to win on having the best technology, not just because you can block other people from doing it. But then uh, on the one hand, okay, you've got a couple of things. You could be taking your time to invent a new technology, right? 
uh, you could be helping to commercialize technology because you guys have acquired a couple of really interesting technologies, uh, especially recently, right? Mm-hmm. Or you could be making like the actual, you know, uh, the the iPro SLA nine thousand better, right? Or you could be making kind of a process chain, like automate the part removal and the and the, the washing and the curing of for for sintering or for for SLA, you know. So how right. do you divide up your time between those like different kind of challenges or the different uh, areas? Yeah, and and that's really one of the challenges of being a chief scientist and a technology leader at a company that with as broad of portfolio as 3D Systems has, is how do we you know focus on these things? And so we we have been we've been we've been narrowing our focus. We're not getting rid of any of the product lines, meaning of the different types of technologies we make, because every one of the types of technologies we make has a future. And is and can be profitable as its own technology segment. And when I say technology types, I'm meaning like material jetting and you know, laser powder bed and things like that. Each of those has has legs. And so what we're doing at 3D Systems is really coming back to the core internally and making sure we have a really outstanding team focused on every single technology that we want to take forward. And in the past, um, you know. Kind of, and this has been true in our industry, but also in 3D systems. We sort of swarm a, a new initiative. Everybody's going to move over here and focus on this thing. Now everybody's going to move over there and focus on that. And you know, you can sometimes do interesting things doing that, but then then the, what you're not swarming might get a little stale. That product line, and um, we're moving away from that to where you know we are trying to refresh every single product line on a regular basis is our goal. And you're going to start seeing that, um, you know, over the coming years that, you know, we're, we're really changing the way we're doing this mm-hmm. so that, so that every important product line continues to see innovation on a regular basis. Well, and I- so of course that means you have to have a much more agile development process. You've got to use a lot of the sort of modern techniques that are used by other high tech companies. Um, but you know that's that's where we're going, and the beauty is, and we you know this is all public information. We 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 selling all of our companies that we just let go of has allowed us to go out and buy some really innovative companies to add some more technology to us, um, as as well as just giving us the opportunity to invest in areas that are strategic and. So it's it's really um, it's nice to have both the vision and the bank account right now at 3D Systems to enable us to uh, achieve that vision. One of the things that, mo- that we in the industry are the most excited about, I think, is your acquisition of Volumetric because that has that is one of these technologies that I think will be actually kind of difficult to actually get out of the gates and get to work, right? Yeah. But <laughs> in terms of the speed, in terms of the resolution, it could be, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word game changer again, uh, but it could be really <laughs> significant. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, the acquisition of Volumetric and the fact that we that we made this gutsy play to move from one printed organ to three printed organs simultaneously we're working on, I mean, that's a that's a strong message to the world that we're in this to win it. You know, the, this goal that we have with United Therapeutics of eliminating the need for people to sit on waiting lists to get a new organ and then maybe die while they're on that waiting list. I mean, that's a grand vision. 
And when this vision becomes success, and I say when, not if, because it will become success at some point, you know, that we, when, the when. basic science has been proven that we can extract stem cells from somebody, we can seed them into a matrix, we can have them differentiate into that new organ. You know, those are, those are things that are known science. Now it's a matter, it's more of an engineering problem of how do we get it all the way to the end. Um, yeah, but specifically, it, you guys really are working exciting. in the lung. Right. And specifically there, I see really some theoretical limits of our technology making alveoli and, and uh, these kind of really, really small structures, right? Yep. And that's uh, been a, a huge yeah. focus. And in fact, um, talking to Chuck Hole about the history of this work, when when somebody, when they first came and talked about it, he's like, I'm not sure we can make those features that we need to do that. And he went off for a couple of years, mm -hmm. thought about it, prototype stuff. And that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. It's it's not can we make them? Mm -hmm. It's uh, you know how do we get this all the way through, you know the FDA trials and stuff to mm -hmm. prove that we can, and that it works, and mm -hmm. um, you know we now have the ability to print at the feature resolution needed for mm -hmm. that. That's exciting. What would what would you hope? I mean, it's a hope. No one's gonna you know hold you to it. The timeline at this point is is it twenty years in the future? So therefore more ethereal, or is, you think it's more like a five <laughs> to ten year? horizon yeah i mean I, when people I say 20 want, years I don't it wanna, like it's never gonna happen but <laughs> no i you know if i if i thought it was gonna take that long i wouldn't be as excited about it as i am fair enough maybe we'll just leave it at that mm. fair oh, totally. and i think i think there's one interesting thing i think is like okay so every time i talk to these people everybody's focusing on organ systems because they can only focus on one because of the approval right and because they only have so much money and they want to capture IP around that organ system, right? But very few people are focusing, or no, compared to the the length, the the size of the challenge, very few people are focusing on vascularization. Do we need like something kind of like you remember, like you know, you had like a human genome project? Do we need like kind of like something like a human vascularization project to get this going? I don't think so, because I mean, it's sort of like, did we need another um, challenge to go to the moon in order to create SpaceX? No, we mm -hmm. didn't. We just needed somebody fabulously wealthy who saw the vision <laughs> into it, right? Okay. Um, and now we're going to go to Mars and we'll probably colonize the moon and things like this if, if, this, if that vision continues to, to play out uh, as, it, as successfully as it has to date. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it. I mean, if you look at United Therapeutics, our big partner in this, you know, you have somebody who became quite wealthy <laughs> in similar ways to how Elon Musk became wealthy and right. and and are funding it. And so no, I don't I don't really think we have to have a big government genome project. We just have to turn loose um the creativity and the wealth that's been generated in other areas of of our economy and let people apply it to this massive opportunity to do good. And in fact, you know, the history of, of United Therapeutics, our partner was really all around, I, you know, someone who had a family member who, who needed help. And they're like, there's just nothing out there. I better go create that. And so that's the sort of thing that, that can happen in, you know, in a successful thriving economy, people who make it rich can then turn around and then change the world with that wealth. And that's, that's part of how we're seeing this happen. Okay, cool. Hey, Brent, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And Max, thank you for being there as always.
Always fascinating as always, George. Thank you. And uh, thank you guys for listening. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.